Hello. Welcome to Learn to Be Learned podcast. This is Shane Callahan. Welcome to another episode. This is a interview episode with uh, one of my good friends, Anna Gallegos. She is the um, refugee resource coordinator for the University of Utah Health. And she and I had a great discussion about the life and the process of um, what a refugee goes through when they come to the United States and more specifically when they when they come to Utah. I am really excited to share this interview with you. Um, like I said, it's a great discussion. It's uh, a little bit over an hour, so an hour 15, and um, I hope you learn a lot. I do want to give a trigger warning. Um, it's a very brief discu- or, uh, uh, moment where Anna goes into some detail of what some refugees experienced prior to them coming over to the United States. Um, some refugees went through some extreme events, uh, horrific events. And at about the 30 minute mark, um, she kind of describes what some refugees went through before they came to the United States. So watch out around the 30 minute mark. Feel free to skip over about five minutes. Um, if you want to, but I just want to give you a heads up just so you're not caught off guard. Uh, like I said, it's a brief moment that she talks about this. Other than that, it's a great discussion. It's great um, to talk to her about what she does and how she got to where she's at. Um, at the very end of the podcast, we go over resources. So if you are inspired and you want to help however you can, please stay tuned to the end of the podcast uh, to go over all those resources. And without further ado, here's the interview with Anna. Hi, Anna. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for being here. I appreciate you being here. I'm good. How are you doing? Though? Good. Yeah. Busy. Yeah. Lots going on, yeah. but all good things. All yeah. moving in positive directions. Yeah. Oh, that's why I see that all on Facebook. I see uh, how busy you are with like what you're posting and, and bringing awareness uh, to your own community. So I definitely know that you've been uh, boots on the ground ever since the beginning of last year. Um, and we'll dig more into that, but, uh, first off, introduce yourself, Anna. Who are you? <laughs> I've known you for like a long time. Like it's been crazy. I was thinking about it the other day and like, wow, I've known Anna for 12 years now. Oh my gosh. Like since I was, <laughs> since I was 12. So 15 years because yeah. I was in middle school going to, yeah, I was, that's when Zach Afadaka brought me over to youth and that's when you were at youth group. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's nuts. That is nuts. Youth group. That was a good time. Yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time. <laughs> um, but I'm Anna Gallegos. I'm the Refugee Services Program Coordinator for um, University of Utah Health. And um, I'm over at the Redwood Health Center because that's where the biggest group of refugees are within the University of Utah system. Hmm. So I do all things refugee-related, limited English proficiency, patient-related, immigrant-related, asylum-related, Pretty much international patients, um, I work with them. Wow, that's a lot of hats. Yeah. <laughs> so Well, and that's not even all the hats of what I do with those patients. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So what? let's go back to high school, college, and then we'll get to where you're at now. Okay. Um, tell me just your high school experience, your college experience, you know, what kind of person you were in high school, what kind of person you were in college. And uh, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's fine. <laughs> okay. and, 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 and say what you want to say. And you can leave whatever you want to leave out. 
But I just want to kind of dig into your past a little bit because your past definitely plays into where you're at today. So I'm just curious, yeah. you know, who were you in high school and who were you in college? And um, I know you did a lot of uh, research. You were mm-hmm. in college. You put on a lot of presentations. I don't know much about the presentations you put on. So I'd How like do you remember all this? Facebook. I, you post. I mean, it's like I, I follow people I care about on Facebook. I'm like, they're all doing cool stuff. I must be a good poster. Facebook poster. Pretty frequent, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Um, well, in high school, I was dedicated to dance, and I thought I would be a professional dancer when I grew up. That mm. was my big passion. I loved moving the human body and being creative. And then um, I was on uh, Ryrie, Ryrie Woodbury's Step Up Team. It's a modern dance company downtown. And um, one of my mentors there was like, don't become a professional dancer because you won't make any money. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. And my dad, like, raising a, a daughter and um, of a minority group was like, you need to have a good job and make money so you don't have to depend on a man and you have to work harder, you know, than, like, your white counterparts. And I was like, well, I can't be a professional dancer because I'm not going to make money and I won't be able to support myself. And so I was like, okay, what do I do? Um, and then I was able to – I – I was kind of like, okay, what's healthcare related? Because I, I care about the human body. Um, and I found physical therapy and occupational therapy. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. So I started taking um, courses at the Jordan Applied Technology Center. Found my passion there. I'm a very passionate person. So then I fell in love with that. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to be an occupational therapist. And I had that passion all throughout the rest of high school got into college, and that was still my passion, Um, occupational medicine, and all my coursework, everything like that was driving me to do that, along with definitely taking advantage of living a college life, and partying, and new experiences, and having fun, and all that, Um, and when it was time, I applied to the occupational therapy program, and I didn't get in, and I was shocked, Mm. because like, I was very passionate and driven, and usually if I work really hard, I get the outcome I want, and I wasn't used to that. Um, And then the next year, I applied again, and I didn't get in. And I was even, like, on their pre-occupational therapy, like, student board. Really? Yeah. And so it was, like, I couldn't comprehend that, like, everything I was doing and working towards wasn't coming to fruition. Yeah. And so I just... Finished out college with a degree in um, health promotion and education because I I still wanted to do health. And um, I wanted to also, I didn't mention, but work work with vulnerable populations. And that's what I liked about occupational therapies. You were working with people who needed help with, like, doing just their daily um, activities. Um, Making food, doing laundry, um, opening pill bottles. And I just found it very interesting that... Um, you could help people in that small sense that would like make a difference overall in their life. Yeah. Um, so I was still very passionate about that. And um, after college, I went on a humanitarian trip to Peru and I fell in love with the people and um, just the atmosphere and I was able to teach English classes and um, teach them some health workshops. And How long were you there for? 
It was just two weeks. Really? Yes, wow. I know. <laughs> um, it was two weeks, and we built um, a school and sidewalks, and I just fell in love with this diverse, different community than me, um, and was blown away by their resilience. And um, there was a clinic there um, that was run by like one doctor um, who was, I think she was from Canada. And she was trying to, like, teach the people in this village, like, how to take care of each other. And it was very remote. It was off the Amazon River out, like, miles and miles and miles and miles. And so people were coming in with, like, piranha bites and malaria and broken bones. And she was just trying to fix it all. And I was like, okay, like, I think this would be something that I could do. Yeah. Because I love being here and learning about new cultures and... It's helping vulnerable populations, and um, I thought I would do that. And then I got home from the trip, and I was like, I don't know if I can move to Peru. Like, <laughs> actually, that sounds like kind of crazy, you know? Yeah, to, to pick up and move your entire life. Yeah. Yeah, and so then I was trying to find my passion here and with, like, different kinds of communities, um, with different racial, ethnic backgrounds and things like that. Um, and I just couldn't really find anything. And But I wanted to stay within the University of Utah because I thought that's good opportunities. And um, I like what they do. And coming from that school background, um, I was like, I think I'm going to do that. And then that just kind of from there blew up. Yeah. Cool. I think you even mentioned I went to the University of Utah. So oh, you're good. I, I mentioned it now. <laughs> <laughs> mentioned it now. Yeah. Um, what What did you learn the most in Peru? Like, what stood out to you the most that you just were like, I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life? Like, did you have any, like, crazy experiences or, like, a special experience? Um, obviously, the doctor made an impact on you because yeah. of the life she was changing. But was there anything that, um, other than that, that you remember um, that really kind of impacted you? Um, just, I think this happens on when most people go on a humanitarian trip is that the people they're working with are so happy, resilient, brave, and yet they don't have like possessions or material things or in education or house. And just in America, you know, like you have to have all those things to be happy. Right. And there, you didn't. And they were happy and dancing and singing and so generous and loving. And I was like, I want to be that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You mentioned resilience twice now. Why were they so resilient? What about them do you feel made them resilient? Like... Um, So, being, like, so far out in this remote village off the Amazon, they didn't have, like access to technology um like I mentioned they only had one doctor and because of the diseases and living conditions they were in many of them didn't live past like 40 years old wow and so it was just they were in these pretty tough conditions and they would lose family members or friends and they just kept going wow. and kept loving and giving and working and yeah taking care of each other um was there any like religious 
beliefs in that area, like that culture too. Like I know, that, uh, I don't know if Catholicism was a big thing yeah. in that area. Uh, yeah. Do you think that played a part at all? Like maybe the spiritual beliefs helped? I think so. Yeah. I, I think that helps most people, you yeah, know, definitely. to believe in a higher power. Yeah. And they, they did. They had a pastor and his wife in this little like tin church and um i remember getting really emotional in the service really and by that time i wasn't like going to church anymore or anything like that um but obviously i wanted to go and and be a part of the experience and um yeah they would just sing and like cry as they were singing and just like in spanish like saying like your heart is my heart my heart is your heart and um like all things are good and everybody was just dancing and happy and emotional wow. and it was like this crazy experience yeah to be a part of i'm sure you got swept up in that i mean i get swept up in that too yeah everything's just emotional and 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 feels good yeah wow that's cool that's a good experience then it was really cool so what did you take back from peru to here so what you learned in that experience uh, obviously kind of helped you play into the refugee role that you're in now, but um, I'm, I'm sure you didn't know the role existed that you're in. It, I, like you said, you're the only person uh, that's in the position you're in now. Let's talk, start talking about those steps between yeah. coming back from Peru to where you're at. Um, so, yeah, I kept debating going back to Peru, and I didn't have the gumption to really do that um, that's a huge major shift i mean that i, <laughs> and I not know. even speaking spanish oh my goodness yeah <laughs> yeah they would have been like you're not very helpful like why are you here um, <laughs> i'm doing my best okay <laughs> i know i didn't even have like a medical degree and yeah i i had a lot of high hopes and dreams and just wanted to help people well, that's good <laughs> yeah a little naive um but uh the steps to get here so I was like, I'm going to get back in with the University of Utah and um, see, like, where I can find within there these different, a a role that would be um, helpful with having a bachelor's degree and um, dealing with um, health education, promotion at a community type of level. Um, And I kept wanting to do the U. There's other things and programs out there but I just was like I need to do the U like I love the U I have to do it I just kept pushing for that but there was nothing open really so no and um I I ended up interviewing for like a uh it's called a PRS so patient relations specialist Mm. it's like the front uh check-in staff position um and I was like I this is going to be my my step in and I'm going to see what happens. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um and so I started there and it just so happened that the the clinic I interviewed with um and that ended up hiring me was in this very diverse community of Salt Lake. Um, it's off of 21st South and Redwood Road. Did you know that going into it, that they were as diverse as they were? Or did you just no. choose them and, and like all the interview there and see what happens? Well, I interviewed at a different clinic, Westridge Clinic initially, which was off of Bangor, um and, uh, oh, I don't know that road. <laughs> the Westridge Clinic. I don't know where it is. Um, it's in West Valley. Oh, it's in West Valley in Bangor. Bangor, and it's across from like an IHC. 
Oh, uh, that's that's actually that's on forty fourth. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's right. So I I applied there, and I thought this will be good because too I learned in school like in healthcare facilities people want to see people that look like them. Yeah. To build trust. Yeah. And I know that's a very high Latinx um, community there. So and I, I was like I'm gonna try that. That that's a good start. And then as I was uh, waiting to hear back from them. It was the Redwood Clinic that called me and was like, actually, we want you to interview here mm. and and see if you like it. And when I was interviewing with them, they told me, you know, we have patients that come from all over the world. We have a lot of homeless patients, patients with high mental health condition, uh, 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 mental health service needs. Um, it's a very complex group of patients who need a lot of help. And so you have to give, like, 110% every time. And I was like, I can do that. Like, this sounds cool. Yeah. Um, but that was, like, besides the area that it was in, and that was the only two pieces I had to the puzzle of it being, like, a diverse group. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the position for that one, though? It was the same. Same PRS, one? Oh, okay. Front desk. Okay. Um, yeah. So I started there, and then... It was, that's when I became acquainted with, well, really acquainted with refugees. Mm -hmm. Although, um, I had done volunteer work at a place near the Redwood Health Center, uh, the Dream Center. And they, um, it's like an after school program where you can help them with homework and you feed them dinner and do tutoring and active activities. And it has a little bit of like, um, uh, church a a kind of like uh church teaching aspect to it in a sense okay there's people like from uh south mountain who go and help oh really okay yeah and so there were some refugees there you know and but i didn't really realize like who who is a refugee or what that means to be a refugee but i saw just like people who looked very different than me and then i was seeing them there at the redwood health center as well i was like oh okay this makes sense it's like in the same area um and then, too, most of the patients didn't speak English. Mm. And so we had to use interpreters who were in clinic in person to come and translate between you and the patient. And so um, that was really cool and really unique and kind of like uh, a learning curve yeah. to get used to. Yeah. Um, and then I just kept noticing, like, Patients would come in and they wouldn't understand like why they needed to be in clinic or why they had an appointment or they'd miss an appointment or come like two hours late or three hours late or the wrong day. Um, And it just was like all these like miscommunications um, in care. And um, over the years, I found myself like spending more time away from the desk to help them with these kinds of things. Or they needed, like, medical records, but they didn't speak the language, and obviously their medical records were in English, so I'd use interpreters to, like, go over their information with them. Or they were trying, they wanted to see a doctor to get pregnancy tests because they didn't know, like, you could just go to the pharmacy to oh, get yeah. one. So I was, like, teaching them how to use that. Or um, Medicaid, they would come in and their Medicaid wouldn't be working, but no one was there to be able to help them get mm-hmm. enrolled in Medicaid. So I just kept finding, like, all of these disconnects yeah yeah and and at one point 
I I mean, people already knew, like, oh, if a refugee has a problem, just send him over to Anna. Like, Anna will work with them. Wow. Which was cool. Yeah, that you is know? cool. And I... You're building your reputation. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, like, when patients would come up and they spoke a different language, you know, I'd ask them how to say hello or thank you or common phrases, and I'd do it back, and then I'd try to remember. So the next time they come back, I'd do it, and they'd, like, be very tickled. And it was just... I was building these connections yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then for a quality project, I got asked to build a uh, new patient packet for refugees. Cool. And I was like, awesome. Yes, I can do this. And then I started working with resettlement agencies. Resettlement agencies are who bring in the refugees, um, like the moment they get off the plane in the U.S. Okay. And they help them for two years with case management. Okay. So I started wow. calling them and asking, like, how should I build this welcome packet? Like, is this information useful? Is this information useful? And they're like, don't build a packet. And I was like, what? And they were like, they might not even, they're not going to be able to read it if it's in English. Oh, yeah. And you can get it translated into their language, but that takes a long time. And if they didn't, if they weren't able to go to a formal schooling, they might not be able to read it. They might just be able to speak a bunch of languages. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so I was just, the more I talked to these caseworkers and agencies, I was like, okay, nothing we're doing in this healthcare system makes any sense for these patients. Yeah. And it was like, this is like so much work to be done. And um, I brought it forward to my manager and I was just kind of inquiring and testing the waters like what if we had someone who worked with this population all the time or tailored our services to them and tailored our care and stuff like that and this was three and a half years ago almost four years ago yeah and she was like i think that's a great idea like build try to get some data together or get a presentation or report together and let's bring this forward and so I worked on that for uh, almost a, a year just trying to nail stuff down and yeah. get help and how was that process I'm sure it was tedious I mean you had to probably overturn a lot of rocks yeah to build the data and then report on it well and there was no one there to do it for me right yeah and I I mean I was in this like front level position but I didn't have access to like IT or analytics or even knew that existed yeah and so I'm like trying to build so what did you do yeah well, how'd you build it you know like I'm, you gotta had to, you had to have gotten creative yeah I I think what I did is I like looked at the schedules every day and looked if the patient spoke a different language to, hmm. to make a basic identifier because it's not like we were identifying patients who this is a refugee this isn't a refugee and so then from there I would try to keep track of like how many missed appointments there were mm. or no shows mm. or how how late they would be to appointments or how much time providers had to spend with them or how much time providers had to use uh, how much time it took providers to use interpretation okay. with them so like kind of tracking like appointment lengths no-shows, tardiness. And why were you looking at those specifically? Because that's what leadership, leadership cares a lot about, the providers. Okay. And the providers are 
doing the work, making the money, and so we need to make their life easier. Gotcha. And make sure that their patients are arriving gotcha. and showing up. Yeah. So I was trying to go at it from like, how can I get some buy-in? Yeah. If I make the provider's life easier. Okay. Um, and I. I understand now. Yeah, and two, I'd pull patients aside, and those who I had built connections with too, and and just ask them like, how do you feel about this, or how do you feel about our center, or what do you wish was different? And so a lot of it was qualitative too, pulling patient interviews. Yeah. And then how I, reluctant were they to inter- be interviewed by you? Were there any people that were like, "No, don't talk to me. Like, I just want to get out of here." Did you have pretty good feedback? I had good feedback. Yeah. But I think it's because I had, I had built connections and I okay. put in time to be familiar with them. Yeah, that makes sense. And let them know like this information you share with me can help refugees across our whole clinic. Yeah. And they were like, "Okay." Yeah. So yeah. they saw the impact. Okay. Yeah. Right on. And so. I pulled that together, and I think I came up with, like, a list of, like, 50 things that I was going to do Mm -hmm. to be like, I can do everything. Like, this is going to be amazing. Brought it forward to my manager, and she's like, okay, you need to condense it because this is not realistic, and you're going to die. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So um, I kept condensing it and um, working with the patients and interviewing providers and interviewing staff. Like, what do you wish was different, or what would help you? work with this population or what do you wish you knew about them right and as well as with the agencies and so I was bringing forth a lot of these like cross-referenced interviews and things like that um and to show like this may not the refugees may not be our the majority of our patient population but it's definitely taking the majority of our time Mm. and um I brought that forward in a presentation that I imagine if I looked at now I would be like what in the world, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, how did they ever agree to let me do this? But I brought it forward, and they were like, this is awesome. Yeah. This is cool. And the medical directors, too, like, our medical director was already focused on this population, was very passionate about them. Mm. That's good. And, yeah, so I had a lot of support, and then they agreed to make the position, and they were like, okay, who's going to do it? And I was like... Me, yeah. please pick me. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't you see I want to do it? Why did they even ask? <laughs> yeah, it, but they had to like post a position and yeah, interview go people. Through all the formalities. And then, surprise, surprise, I got it. There you go. <laughs> and it's changed. That was uh, December 2017. It's, I think, yeah, it's already changed like since then, just over the years. What has and, changed? Um, a lot of my my role in general where I still was in the mindset of I'm going to do everything I'm going to help everybody mm-hmm. um, and now it's like okay I can't physically do that Yeah. and so instead of me putting out every fire or talking to every single patient or fulfilling every need or call I get everybody in my clinic trained and comfortable and culturally confident to work with these patients. Yeah. So they know what to do within their scope. And it's not me doing everything refu- refugee-related in 30 different scopes. Yeah. That's so, smart. So how was it that? It took me a while. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it did, yeah. <laughs> um, how was the training part? I mean, were people easy to catch on? Like, did they understand the overall goal, what you were trying to teach them? Um, what were the benefits? Do you have yeah. any 
Any or, uh, feedback about that? How do you think that went? Um, well, luckily, Redwood, because of where it's at location-wise and near like affordable housing and public transportation, many of these patients have historically been coming here. Mm. And so there was a lot of um, interest from providers and staff where they're like, oh, this makes sense. Mm. Yeah, let's learn how to do this. But then trying to get time oh, yeah. to do the training was really hard. And so it was more like me doing coaching as things happened or as things occurred until I was like, okay, I can't do this. Like we need to do some big overall team meeting education yeah. uh, sessions Yeah. because I'm, I'm going crazy, like repeating myself right. a million yeah. times. Um, and the medical directors and leadership thought it was a good idea. And so since then I've been able to have continuous training and you know it gets hard and and schedules get filled up but um it's it's we're getting back to it and it's been hard too with covid because everything's been covid related right um but yeah uh everybody's been very supportive and positive and i think too once they understand what it means to be a refugee once they go through like one training then they're like Oh, okay. I see the importance of this. Right. Uh, what well, What do you think the importance is? Because I've never been through the training, so you have to kind of share with me uh, what you would share with them. Um. So you have to one. You have to connect to your purpose of why you're in your role. Okay. And for in a healthcare setting, you're there to help people, make them feel better, and so. Things can get pretty complicated, you know, when you're working with a patient who has a language barrier or comes from a completely different culture, um, completely different healthcare system. And so you have to really have empathy and curiosity and then put that into action with your patients mm. and keep connecting back to your purpose of why you're in that role. Um, and where you're at, at the Redwood Health Center, you're working with refugee patients. You're working with patients who are come from different cultures. And that's your responsibility. That's your job. Yeah. And so you can learn, you know, the, the do's and don'ts of how to work with, like, a Burmese population or Iraqi population or Congolese population, um, which makes it helpful you know like if you have to be on the clinical aspect of things but also to just being patient and using the resources that are at your disposal and not letting a patient fall through the crack so ensuring that when they're in front of you everything that needs to be done gets done yeah that you're making sure all if they had any missed appointments that they're rescheduled um if there's something in their chart that says they're late for a vaccine or a pap smear making sure you get that on there um it's 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 kind of a lot of things yeah yeah it sounds like it um well when it comes to a clinical setting but i just try to make sure people know the tools that are available what their responsibility is get them to connect back to their purpose so they don't yeah. have compassion inertia um and Compassion and inertia. It's the first time I've heard that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you read that somewhere? Did you hear that? Where'd you learn that? Um, just in the healthcare setting. Yeah. Um, 
where you obviously you're in that role because you care about people right and you care a lot and it can be really tire tiring right and especially if you're working with patients who um, have suffered traumatic experiences yeah and they tell you their story and then you can have like a secondhand um, trauma you know right learning their story right and you can hold on to it um, and it just makes you exhausted right in your role and it can lead you to burnout and so working on resiliency among clinical providers and staff and making sure they have resources so that they don't get to that burnout and they know how to separate their patient story from them right is really important yeah definitely I can only imagine I mean being a refugee uh, I'm sure is just extremely difficult um, especially coming to a new land where you don't speak the majority of the language um, and like you mentioned all those barriers before I, I'm sure it's harder to outside of the clinic uh, having to shop and having to just live a normal life in such a awkward spot. I mean, the United States is definitely uh, not an easy place to grow up in, um, to be a refugee. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine um, the stories that you guys would hear and the history that these refugees have. I mean, I, I'm glad that they're in the land of the opportunity, but, you know, I'm sure that the, the traveling, I mean, the, the that's what I'm looking for. The path to get here was not easy. Yeah. So, uh, is there um, any experience that was shared with you personally uh, that you reflect on a lot? There's a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think just, I mean, I, I started making relationships with these patients and I know their name, I know how to greet them, they knew my name, and we'd, we'd chat. Um, and then after I'd get to know them more, or we have to be looking like in their chart to make referrals and things like that, either I'd, I'd see it in the chart or they would tell me themselves like they had been raped or seeing their child murdered in front of them. Oh, wow. Their husband was kidnapped. Um, just awful things that happened. And yet when they're talking to you, they're, you don't see that. And you don't feel that because of the warmth and the love and, and similar to those, those people I met in Peru who were just so resilient and generous and loving and happy and um, it it just shocks me yeah. you know and and um, I I always say like hearing their stories and knowing what it means to be a refugee and again uh, or I shouldn't say again all refugee stories are not the same mm-hmm. but it breaks your heart learning what it means and learning what has happened to them, but then their resilience and how they get through those struggles, like then build your heart back up. Yeah. It's, it's inspiring. I mean, it's, it's saddening, but like you said, though, they have the resilience, they have that, um, courage to carry on. And that is, it's, 
makes our personal problems look so much smaller than they are. You know, the perspective yeah. of what we go through in life is nothing compared to what others go through in life, um, especially when they've had trauma like that. Uh, the It's just so much insignificance. Um, I mean, if our phone dies or if our car breaks down, you know what I mean? Like, that mm-hmm. stuff can be fixed, it can be replaced, but when somebody loses a loved one and yet they carry on as if that loved one is still alive with them, that's remarkable. I mean, it's, that's yeah. I mean, that's awesome. Um, and they don't want you to feel bad. Right. They don't uh, sure they want don't. any pity. They don't want to be a victim. Wow. They, they keep on keeping on. And yeah. they're so resourceful and... I mean, they had to be, yeah, you know, to yeah. get here. And there's just so much you can learn from them. Yeah. And, yeah, it, I I think back to that a lot of the times when I'm having a hard day. I'm like, this doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I haven't had any personal experiences like you have, but just from um, reading autobiographies or biographies in general, people who have had hard experiences uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I love the book. I don't know if you've heard of that one yet by Viktor Frankl. I think I've heard of it. It's um, He was a psychiatrist that survived the Holocaust. Um, oh, boy. So he, he goes into depth about his experiences. And since he was technically a doctor, the Nazis used him a lot for um, helping their patients, quote-unquote helping. Uh, he was trying to you know do his best to make sure that they weren't as in pain. But um, his, his whole... Thing is, uh, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Because he was, you know, going through such harsh times, and he didn't know when it was going to end. He didn't know why they were being treated that way, and he kind of lost his faith in God uh, because of the treatment and because of the experience. But since he was a psychiatrist, he took the psychology aspect of what they're they were going through because he needed to kind of find hope into something, and. Um, there's there's only three pages in the entire book. I mean, the his story is remarkable. Um, the way how he survived and and what others went through is um, it's, it's astonishing. Honestly, I couldn't imagine going through it myself. Uh, but he puts into perspective of like, okay, this is what real pain is, and then this is what real happiness is. But there's three pages in the middle of the book where he talks about the meaning of life is not about you searching it but putting meaning in that life. He's like, people who survived were the ones that took the punishments day by day and put meaning to those punishments. They put a purpose to why they were living more so. Like they, weren't, they weren't striving for anything um, great. They were striving for just that next minute or that next hour, and they put purpose in that next minute or the next hour. And it, it humbles you. It brings you to that point of like, okay, yeah, life is not bad. You know, and that's what I, I love reading posts for people like, okay, you got a roof on your head, over your head, you got a bed, you got food. Like, you don't need anything more than that. So if you mm-hmm. don't get the newest gadget, you don't get the newest car, mm-hmm. it's not over. So I love that you said resourceful, resourceful too, because mm-hmm. I, yeah, our resources are so abundant here. You go to the grocery store and it's just easy to pick something off the shelf, whereas other people have to hunt and gather still. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the convenience store around the block and if they do get sick they don't have the medicine to help them feel better they have to like you know i'm sure they have to fight it out and uh and do what they can so wow that's i i feel like you're probably in in a very awesome position and that you are and you probably will still just gather a lot of great experience working with these people 
Um, I mean, how do you feel about it? I feel excited for you listening to all of that because that, yeah, I, that's yeah. inspiring. That's awesome. Um, I, like you said, though, it puts into perspective your own personal problems. But um, when you first started in your position to who you are now, how do you, what growth have you seen in yourself? Uh, if you've noticed or reflected on that at all? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm grown. Yeah. I'm getting there. Yeah. I'm, I'm growing up. Yeah. Even though I'm 29 years old. I know. That's um. like, I'm 27. I'm like, God, I feel so, I'm like 18 in my head. I'm like, damn, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, on a, a personal level, I mean, I dealt with my share of trauma of things that happened to me when I was younger. And um, I have PTSD from that, actually. And I think working with this population has not to say that what happened to me was common or it doesn't matter. Um, but bad things happen, but it doesn't, like, write off your whole life. And you don't have to focus on it. And you can get through it and be successful and have personal growth. And um, I just wanted to be resilient like them. So it's helped me a lot. And that was really hard for me in the beginning too. Just learning what it really meant to be a refugee and why they were here being forced to flee. Um, that was really hard for me. And I was I had a battle with myself internally. Like I have to get through this if I want to help these patients. I can't connect it to me. I have to to separate the stories and focus on them and what they need. And so it's helped me a lot uh, personally with my own mental health, emotional health, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and then from where I started on a profession professional level in the beginning to now, um, and I... I mean, making the position and having to have a voice, it's its given me a lot of growth and confidence. And sometimes it's still funny that, you know, everybody thinks I know what I'm doing, but I'm just like doing it as I go yeah, and right. learning as I go. Um, but it's helped me feel empowered and confident um, and feeling confident in my actions. And especially when... I'm not being a voice for the refugees, but just trying to help uplift their own voices and make sure that they're heard. Um, it's given me not only like a, a satisfactory job, but purpose in life overall. That's good. Right on. So I was the next question was why do you do what you do, oh. and you you pretty much answered all of that. You you genuinely want to help people. Mm -hmm. um, was there ever anybody in your life that helped you? Yeah, um, I think my answer is pretty common of my parents. Yeah, you have great parents. I love your parents. I have the best parents. Yeah, I'm sorry. Everybody. My parents say the same thing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um. I think from a young age, like, I've always cared about people, and I, and especially if they were different, and my parents, you know, 
taught me to be kind and be inclusive and to not leave out anybody. Like, I grew up on a cul-de-sac, and if I was having a party, like, I had to invite everybody, you know, which I think a lot of parents do. Um, but then if I, I just, like, kind of carried that with me of not wanting people to ever feel left out or unheard um, and kind of being a, a little protective and I think that's too why I'm in the role that I am because I love people and I care about them and if I see a disservice I get like a little bit heated mm, about it and yeah. defensive yeah. and protective yeah <laughs> um mom beer comes out yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm like you're gonna take care of this patient yeah yeah um I think my parents really helped me with that mm-hmm. and my dad from a young age telling me you know like everybody's different and um you should love everybody and everybody's gonna have different opinions and everything is not black and white and um yeah and pushing me you know to be successful and you gotta take care of yourself and yeah so kind of combining all of that yeah i'm thinking like community because you mentioned like cul-de-sac like you have that mentality uh, do you feel like you surround yourself with the same kind of people? Um, or do you feel like, uh, have you searched for those same kind of people so that it makes it easier for you to do that? Uh, work-wise? Yeah. Um, yes. The, I feel like the whole beginning of my job, and it, it's still a lot like this, was networking. So I made meetings with everybody mm. I could think of who did anything with the community or anything with refugees or anything with Limited English proficient patients. Is this in, internal healthcare. with the with the clinic, or you were external? Just, okay, okay. And internal. Okay. So I was trying to get to know everybody, so we could work together mm-hmm. and share resources, not reinvent the wheel, collaborate, coordinate, and make sure that everybody's needs and voices were heard. Um, there's like a community kind of. Um, not mantra uh, or slogan, but the saying, like, nothing about us without us. Mm. And that's always stuck with me, too. Like, making sure that what you're doing, if you're doing it for another population or community or group, that you're doing it based off their needs and their Mm. voice and what they need. Um, So, yeah, I'm surrounded by lots of amazing people and I think that too pushes me to work harder and smarter and not give up because there's there's people you know our purpose is people and making sure that they're healthy and safe and well and um have a a good quality of life so I'm really thankful for that and too with my team at the Redwood Health Center um I've been really um just in awe of my group where um, if I'm not even in a meeting that's going on to talk about COVID testing or vaccinations, it's still my team that's bringing up, how is this going to work for someone who doesn't speak English? How is this going to work for somebody who doesn't have access to internet? Um, How are you going to make sure that this patient priority, this patient population is prioritized? Right. Um, And so I'm very lucky and maybe I'm, I mean, I have diff- people I work with who have difference of opinions and things like that, but we all are very patient-focused yeah. and community-focused, and I think it 
gives us a lot of momentum to um, make progress. Right on. And this kind of leads into the next question I have for you, the challenges <laughs> that you face. So you mentioned some of the challenges without internet and then the language barrier. Um, I'm sure transportation can sometimes be a, a, a challenge as well. What are some challenges that you faced that you overcame? And then what are some challenges that um, you're facing right now that, I mean, you might have solutions for, might not have solutions for, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so this, the pop, this population in general, and it's nothing to do with like lack of intelligence or anything like that, but just, it, this is a completely different system and all of our systems in the U.S. are not made for international patients in mind. And so, yeah, transportation is huge because just because you can get somebody a bus pass, they might not know how to use it mm. to get from here to there. Right. Um, and the language barrier. We have languages in our clinic that are, um, there's no interpreter in Utah who speaks that language. Really? And so we have iPads that have applications on them for like uh, a, a big pool of interpreters throughout the world, and there's still no interpreters connected to it. So we'll have patients in our clinic from 30 minutes to four hours just trying to get an interpreter for their provider wow. to communicate with them. So that's a big one. Yeah, transportation, languages of lesser diffusion. Um, there's a lot. Uh, real quick, though, how many, <laughs> how many uh, interpreters do you guys have on site? So with COVID, it's decreased because we're mm -hmm. trying not to fill the clinic with people. Um, but we have Somali, Swahili, Arabic, and Spanish all day long. Wow. Um, and then besides that, we use our iPads for interpretation. Okay. Um, but back before COVID, I mean, we have over um, 85 different languages spoken at our clinic. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so we <laughs> wow. would have, we were checking in half as many interpreters as we were patients, you wow. know? And it was like the cool hangout spot. Like yeah. there's an interpreter corner. They see a patient coming up and they could hear that they were speaking their the language. Dialect. Okay. They just come up, start helping you. They're like part of our family. Yeah, the for sure. I mean, they have to be. You guys have to build that relationship so that everyone knows how to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. right and on. they're they're a cultural broker too. You know, it, it's the patients trust them and the providers trust them and it works really well our interpreters are phenomenal that's awesome um so you mentioned case agents when refugees come to the u.s or come to the state there's a case agent assigned to them is that case agent responsible for your clinic getting set up with them as well like how do you guys find these patients because um, I'm sure they don't know where your clinic's at until you reach out to them first and say, hey, we're here to help you. Mm -hmm. How does that whole process work? Um, yes, and remind me to talk about a, a challenge because Oh, we can talk about that right after this. Okay, yeah. yeah, we can talk about that right after. Um, so how it works is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the UN, they um, seek out these groups of refugees that are in the most severe need. And there's 79.5 million people displaced around the world wow. right now. It's a global um, crisis, and yeah. only 1% ever gets resettled. Wow. So the the people that we get in our clinic are the lucky ones. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but they go through, they deem these groups as being high severity, and they have UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, 
go out and help them get started with the resettlement process. And that can take years. Yeah. It's interviews and vetting and yeah. investigations and this and that. Um, and then they get it set up that, okay, this group passes. They get to do like a medical examination while they're over there. And then while that's happening, there's agencies out here who um, work with the government to say, hey, we have resources for this person. We will take them. And so the agencies, there's International Rescue Committee, um, Catholic Community Services in Utah who do that. Um, and they'll take them by individual or they'll take them by cases. Okay. So cases will be like a group, a family, individuals is just one person. Right, right. And so while they're on the one side across the country getting ready to head over here, our agencies are getting ready to pick them up. So then they'll meet him at the airport, pick him up. By this time, they will have gotten them a apartment set up and furnished through donations. Wow. And so they'll bring them in. And, and usually, um, you know, they hope to have a caseworker from the agency who speaks their language, but they might have an interpreter um, to help build that um, right. uh, language barrier bridge. Mm-hmm. And so they'll bring them to their apartment and get them all situated. You know, if they haven't lived in a, uh, what is this kind of apartment called? It's a normal apartment to us, but like. Um, I mean, this would be considered a single family house. So, yeah. but I can see the amenities that an apartment brings, like running water and a refrigerator and an oven. like Stove, yeah. thermostat. Right. Yeah. So if the, the families aren't familiar with that, they'll teach them, you know, how to use that. And then they're like, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. And then they pick them up and they start doing like orientations with them about health, about education, about English, about work. Um, and within the first 30 days, it's just like information overload. Yeah, that's a bombardment of information. Yeah. yeah. And they're also getting them um, a initial health screening at a clinic here in Utah. So St. Mark's Family Medicine and Health Clinics of Utah do an initial screening with a refugee within the first 30 days. And um, it's going over, you know, based off where they're from, they'll look for priority health conditions, mental health conditions, history of torture, different things like that. And then from there, the patient will finish all they need to do that was based off that screening, if they need follow-up labs or x-rays, things like that. And then if they don't establish care there, then usually they'll need to establish care at a clinic that is closest to their house so they have easy access. Mm-hmm. And so that's usually when they get established at my clinic okay. with a primary care physician. Gotcha. How many primary care physicians do you guys have on site? Um, we have, I can't tell you off the top of my head, we have an, an internal medicine group a pediatric group. We have a complete Spanish clinic that is just Spanish-speaking staff providers, MAs, um, and then a, a other family practice group. And there's four main ones, and mm-hmm. each one has at least, like, five. Yeah. So there's probably close to 30 providers that we have. Nice. Right on. Um, so then what was the challenge you thought of, just yeah. barely? And two, those providers, most of them have worked with this population before okay schools oh cool have experience and so that's why they're at redwood right on um and a challenge w- with you you made me think of it when you said like they don't know to come to you 
unless you talk to them. Also, patients who are established, if they find out, like, hey, my friend just got arrived here, or my family member got arrived, mm-hmm. like, come to my clinic. My clinic's awesome. And we're like, yeah, come to our clinic. Um, <laughs> but a challenge we've been having with just communication with the patients when they're not in clinic is simply that, outreach. Um, because there's a lot of things on the internet, you know, that are shared, and this has been a real big challenge with COVID. Um, there's social media, there's the internet, there's TV, and there's radio, but not all of our patients, like, have access to that and mm-hmm. are accessing that, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so trying to get information to them, education to them, resources to them when they're not in clinic is really hard. Right. So how do you guys manage to overcome that or what are you working on to try to overcome that? Are you sending out like newsletters, like mail? Um, are you trying well, to like... there's a challenge because if you send it out, you can do it. We can do English and Spanish really easy. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then you would have to get it translated. Right. Each letter costs 50 cents to a dollar. Oh, wow. So it takes a really long time. Yeah. And the patient might be able to speak the language, but they might not have learned how to write it. Right. So then do you spend the money to get that translated? That's true, and it's not going to hit a dead end, right? That makes sense. Or wow. do you send it in English, hoping that they have somebody in their circle who can yeah. read it? Um, in our system, you know, it's set up for English and Spanish, but trying to get out mass information right. like in text messages, like we don't have that set up. All of, I mean, systems across the board in the U.S. were just not set up for this population. And there's no company that would be you guys could partner with that could set up something like that or have you guys not looked it into it a lot of money well i'm sure yeah that's that's true that would cost a lot of money because that's a lot of uh legwork to get that done um damn so yeah we have to partner with you know our caseworkers community health workers yeah. and share all the information we can hoping that they'll see it when they go into a grocery store or a mosque or a church or are with their caseworker or at their English classes or their place of work, you know. Um, There's not a good way to do it. That's something that's been really challenging. So when COVID hit then, did you guys just share the information as they were coming into the clinic then and hoping that they would share with others? Um, Like you said, there's no way for them to really know what's going on in the world if they don't have any sort of way to read about it or look at it or hear about it. so I assume that if they were coming in for a checkup, you guys would probably just inform them and be like, hey, there's a pandemic happening now. You have to wear a mask or you have to do, you know, wash your hands more frequently or something like that. Is that what you guys, is that the kind of the, the, the plan? Yeah. 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 It was a lot of patient education. Um, and thankfully, a lot of them have ties to their community. They use like WhatsApp a okay. lot. Yeah. The international texting. Yep. Um, so we try to provide as much like education in like recorded videos um, and things like that with the community leaders and partners so that they can send it out when they cross paths Mm -hmm. with these um, with these patients or are able to text them and then too there was community health workers on the ground going door to door in neighborhoods like hey this is what's going on this is what you need to do wow and there, you know, we sent out my chart messages, which is our online portal, yeah. and yeah. and basic text messages. But I mean, it was another language. Yeah. So. And you're saying that there's 
you said, what is it, 85 different languages? Mm-hmm. Like, holy, yeah. Right. I can't imagine the legwork that goes into that. Yeah, and trying um, to get invited to every discussion we can or community yeah. meeting we can to let them know what's going on. Wow. Yeah. Uh, with COVID happening now and, like, all the barriers you guys have faced and overcame, have you guys thought of any, uh, I guess... I guess there's no easy solution really because of the language barrier, but I guess like post COVID, is there anything that you guys have wanted to change now that COVID's happened and you're like, okay, we can take this experience and we can run with it post COVID because it works. Um, you guys kind of ran into anything like that where you've noticed uh, a difficulty, but you found an answer to it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, that's, it's been, COVID in general has been good on that front yeah. because there was already these underlying barriers and concerns and issues that we had with this patient population that now were becoming more common for patients outside of that population. So the general population was running into these same mm. problems and concerns. And so finally, people were starting to care about it more Yeah, because they were experiencing it more, more familiar with it. Um, and so that's been good where now instead of, you know, bringing forward, like, this is a problem, this is an issue. And they're like, well, how, how big of an issue? Like, let's get some more data on. It's like, no, you can, now you can see like, there's huge systemic issues and problems that are across the board. Mm -hmm. And so now it's nice. Everybody's more in that kind of mindset of thinking about health disparities and barriers and how to make care and education more accessible overall. And it's, I mean, it's going up to the top of the university chain, you know, who's, all the initiatives they're doing, they're doing with this population in mind. Mm. They're like, we're, we're starting to do COVID vaccines. We're going to start them at Redwood because that patient population needs it. So... It's been good. Yeah. The patients are starting, their needs are being recognized a little. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. It's us and like 11 other clinics. Gotcha. Oh, there's the 11 valley. around here. Okay. Yeah. I should have asked that too. Jordan. Okay. Stansbury, Westridge. And then are they all relatively the same size or are they, are you guys the biggest ones in the valley or? So up in, we were the biggest up until they built South Jordan out in Daybreak area. And then after that, okay, they built okay. Farmington, and after that, they built they rebuilt Sugar House. Mm. But we still keep up, even though our building isn't as big as theirs. We still keep up with all the visits. Yeah, yeah, good. And then now you guys are bringing in. You were just talking about a, a vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, talk more about that. So you guys are now that vaccinations are happening. You guys are setting up an independent building or site or at our clinic. At your clinic, okay. Yeah. We started a week and a half ago. We were the first clinic, and then this week, a few other clinics started doing it as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, we do it in clinic. I mean, we don't have a lot of space, but we try to make it a one-stop shop so it's easy for our patients with yeah. transportation access. That's access. good. Um, but it's built right in. They're right now. They're using rooms that were not made for that. Really. But they were for our gastroenterology group. But they've been so kind to let the vaccine clinic use those. Um, and so we're trying to capture patients who are in clinic 
of this vulnerable population. So while they're there, we can get them vaccinated so that we don't have to worry about yeah. trying to contact them a different way, just taking advantage of while they're already there. Right. Right on. Mm-hmm. And do you tell them to, like, tell their friends if they're in the same age group to come through, um, if they're in the same situation, or...? Well, it's hard because we're only doing university patients right now. Mm, okay. So, yeah, we uh, we get our vaccines from the state, and um, starting this week, we started following the state's guidelines. Before that, we had a smaller supply, so we were doing a smaller medical condition group. Right. But now we're starting to mirror the state and get more vaccines, but it's still um, just university patients Okay. at this time. Right on. Okay, I have to ask also the glasses. What's the plastic oh. above your eyes? I've never <laughs> seen those on glasses before. So I'm curious. My <laughs> What's the purpose? shields. Oh, is that what they are? Yes. You can't be in clinic without eye protection. Right. And so if you have uh, prescription glasses, you have these funky little nerdy Because they cover sh- the eyes more. Shields yeah, that cover yeah, yeah. so germs don't get in. Right, <laughs> right. Because you get COVID through your eyes. Is that true? Yes, and I don't know why that hasn't been promoted. Really? Yeah, because it's always been just if you, you inhale it. Yeah. Well, I think they were like, you know what? We're having a hard enough time trying to get people to wear a damn mask. Like, try to ask them to wear eye protection. Well, I thought it was a joke, too, because over the summer or last spring when they were talking more about uh, wearing the mask, people were wearing goggles, like swimming goggles. Because they're like, oh, yeah, you can get infected through the eyes. But I didn't know anything. Like, at the time, nobody really knew uh, last spring where the actual infection could enter the body. And so that's why they're like, oh, if you inhale it, it's just, it's always through the lungs, just wear a mask. And when people were in swimming goggles, I'm like, there's no way it can go through the eyes. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> we didn't know at first. <laughs> that's true, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That nobody yeah. really knew, but when people were, like, they're doing it as a joke, um, and then some were serious, like, yeah, wearing goggles. I just, that, that blew my mind. Because you don't hear of, like, you don't get the flu through the eyes, or do you? Uh, no. Yeah. See, like, you don't hear about the flu getting through. Everybody's combating um, COVID against the flu, saying, okay, you know, it's just like the flu. It's just that's how it spreads. That's how you're going to get sick, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, that surprises me that you could get it through the eyes. I know. Wow. I thought more so it was for, like, blood and, and, and if people were to cough on you. Like, like you said, they're germ, they're germ protectors, so mm-hmm. I could see that. But I didn't think, like, oh, yeah, COVID specifically, you can get it through the eyes. Yeah. Wow. All right. I know. We'll learn something new today. When I, 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 you know, trying to get my family members, like, please do this, wear your mask, do this. Yeah. And I'm like, can you please wear eye protection? And they're like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, you're so annoying. <laughs> and I'm like, I love you. Yeah. Wear eye protection. <laughs> trying to save your life. Yes. <laughs> so what would you like people to be more aware of when it comes to refugees? Um, what would you like to educate the common population on? Uh, if you could just take a megaphone or a giant billboard, what would you say? Learn. Learn what? Learn about this population and get to know them. Yeah. Become familiar. There's so many groups and nonprofits and opportunities, events and workshops and webinars to get familiar with this population. And if you get familiar, you're 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 going to see the world differently, you know? You're going to go to the store and be like, how would a, a refugee, like, know how to do this? Or with your job, you're like, why don't we hire more people like this? 
Or how would we hire somebody whose first language is in English? Or going and doing like active things or taking a trip or going to the movies, you know? Like I think you'll just see the world differently and see that there's so many opportunities to make it this city, this state, this country just more welcoming because refugees aren't new to Utah. We have over 60,000 refugees. Wow. And with the new administration, it's going to be more than that. Bumping up. Yeah. yeah. More arrivals. And yeah. so learn about them, get to know them, and you're going to love them. Yeah. Uh, how can people help? Is there, like, can they volunteer? Can they, how, how can people support? Um, there's so many ways to do that. Um, again, there's, there's different nonprofits. There's the resettlement agencies. Um, even through the, the LDS Church has, like, the humanitarian center that helps a lot of these refugees. There's, Utah is set up to help this population, thankfully. And so there's so many ways that you can volunteer. You can do it in person. You can do it with um, money, with um, donations of furniture, items, clothing. You can mentor a family. You can teach them how to get from their house to a different place. Um, help them with financial planning or take them to your church or take them out on a hike. Um, there's so many different ways to get involved and to help. And I, and I think it all centers around like making this more of a welcoming place. Yeah. Um, where can people go to try to help? Like, is there any organization that you guys work with specifically that would be good to go to? Yeah. Um, so international rescue committee, okay. the IRC, um, Catholic community services, CCS, Asian Association Refugee and Immigrant Center, also known as AAU, Utah Health and Human Rights, they take care of our torture survivors, Utah, wow. so that's UHHR, um, there's the Refugee Center, the English Skills Learning Center, um, there's Promise Salt Lake, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, no, that's perfect, I mean, that's, that's good right there, it's a good start. I'm that's sure. a good start. Yeah, and you can probably Google the rest of them if they want to dig in deeper. Um, oh, and a, a, a easy one I forgot to mention is Utah Refugee Connection. Hmm. And they really focus on what you were asking me, like how do you learn about them, how do you help? They focus on that. So Utah Refugee Connection, it's a, a organization. They have a website with volunteer opportunities, events and activities, and so many different ways that you can help. Cool. Um, right on. And... I guess, is there anything that you would like to share uh, on top of anything we didn't talk about? Is there anything that came to mind as we were discussing? Um, I'm... Hmm. If you can't think of anything, that's fine. I just wanted to kind of bring it up and yeah, be a filler. I'm, I'm hopeful after this past chaotic year that... Everybody wants to come together and love and take care of one another, and this is a really good way to do that, to yeah. get started. Are you guys hiring? Is there uh, any positions available that people could probably look for? Um, within the University of Utah clinical positions, okay. there's 
there's clinical positions open, there's non-clinical positions open, um, there's things that are not necessarily like in hospital or clinics, but um, academia for like our equity, diversity, inclusion team, they're looking for people. There's okay. a lot of opportunities. Cool. And thankfully, we're not in like a hiring freeze right now. Right on. Thanks, Anna. I appreciate you being here. Uh, I'm going to bring you back real soon. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your experiences. It was really awesome to learn about more more about refugees and, and what we can do to help and um, you know the personal experiences. So, Thank you. Yeah, I'm no happy problem. to be here. Good. <laughs>